0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, my name is Patrice Petro, and I'm the director of the Carsey-Wolf Center, UCSB Center for Media Studies. Today, we're thrilled to have Scott Frank with us to discuss Babylon Berlin as part of our fall series on global TV. Today, Scott has generously agreed to talk with me about Babylon Berlin, a German television series that we both admire. It's now my pleasure to invite Scott Frank to the screen. Hi, Scott. Hello. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about this series that we both admire. I'd like to begin with a quote from one of the show's co-creator Tom Tickfer, who gave an interview in the wall street journal he said this about the weimar era and the pivotal year 1929 which is the historical anchor for the series first uh, three seasons he explained and i quote quote at the time people did not realize how absolutely unstable this new construction of society which the weimar republic represented was it interested us because of the fragility of democracy had been put to the test quite profoundly in recent years by 1929 new opportunities were arising Women had more possibilities to take part in society, especially in the labor market as Berlin became crowded with new thinking, new art, theater, music, journalism, so on. People tend to forget that it was also a very rough era in German history. There was a lot of poverty and people who survived the war were suffering from a great deal of trauma. So my first question, let me begin with, with 157 characters, Babylon Berlin follows a young detective from Cologne who finds himself immersed in the nightlife and political turmoil of Berlin, again in 1929, which is interesting in itself, while working with an aspiring female police detective who moonlights as a prostitute to make ends meet. The series draws on historical figures and events, but it is not bound by them or to the novels on which it's based. As a scholar of the period, what hooked me on the series was not just the evocation of Weimar history, but also the history of its intellectual formations, including its cinema. References to Walter Benjamin and Bertolt Brecht, Metropolis, Caligari, the films of Murnau and Fritz Lang, not to mention the historical footage of Marlena Dietrich's screen test for The Blue Angel at one point, which was in fact the first uh, German sound film. Uh, This series, like the era on which which it's based, explores darker themes than typically found in Hollywood crime, immorality, social decay, and so on, the destructive powers of money and technology. I'm happy to say more. But I wanted to ask you up front, what drew you to Babylon Berlin? I read somewhere that you were totally enamored by the production design and the designers themselves. So please tell us more what drew you to Babylon Berlin.
0: Um, Everything you just said. (laughs) I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I loved, I had read the, Berlin Noir series by um Philip Kerr, which I was quite a fan of which which featured a private detective um uh in in Nazi Germany and uh we always loved it, always loved it it just the noir seemed ripe for that for that for that place and I thought when I watched the the first episode, I was really intrigued and i it just it hit me within the first few minutes i I really wanted to be a part of it and by the way she wasn 't a detective at first, his partner, she was, uh, like, she was doing all sorts of odd jobs for the police department. She wanted to be a detective and was working as a, as a prostitute. And I thought that she was really interesting. She's actually maybe the most interesting character and, and the character who goes through the most growth in the, in the show, just fascinating. But, but all of those elements that, uh, it was a world I I really didn't know that well. Um, and it was so visual. I, I just, just, things I'd never seen before, which we'll get to, but but it was really tremendous. And I was not only enamored with all those artists, I hired them all for the Queen's Gambit. So I'm sure yeah. we're going to
1: talk about that. Yeah, yeah. great. great. Well, as you, as you noted, I mean, the show devotes uncommon attention and expense to its period details, costumes, decor, automobiles, even large sets and sound stages. Which of these impressed you most, which still stay with you? Uh, the Mocha FD Club, uh, where Weimar Decadence is on display, amid these Moorish arches and Orient Express decor, something else, somewhere else?
0: Um, I think the performances and the production design were top notch. I mean, obviously, um, Tom Tickver is an amazing director and he directed with, I think, one or two other directors, but but Tom is somebody I've always really admired. and um, But the production design, was very specific. And um, I didn't know, um, it didn't feel uh, um, kitschy. It felt real to me. It felt like I was there. Um, And later when I was in Berlin and I saw the set they use for the street, it's very small, you know, they kind of around the club. I love the design for the club. I love everything that happens in the club. I could see an entire series just based on that
1: club. Right, right. I love the Armenians' uh, private suite with the with the golden globes suspended on pendulums with the secret key and just the drapes and the carpets. I mean, it's it's this fantastic space. And that's not the only one. And of course, obviously, the filmmakers were, you know, they're quoting from a lot of Weimar art culture and print culture and, and movie culture, um, you know. Um, the number of, of scenes struck me, like one where Helga goes to, you know, she's pregnant and one character who, and she sees a, a poster on, on a playbill, a bill on a, on the street. And it's Katie Colowitz's, you know, the starving working class mother and uh, all these, you know, fights for abortion rights. And, uh, you know, so th- there's, there's other ways too. I mean, some critics have said that even at the beginning, uh the way season episode one opens is like reminiscent of Kaligari. But we could talk more of that with you know hypnosis. Well, and-
0: I think it's even um I think people are even being too smart because it's it's also just um Forget the posters and the references and everything else. It just feels exotic. It just yeah. feels very strange, yet it feels like something bad is going to happen at any moment. People are having too good a time. And also not just the, the um, uh, fancier sets, the slums, right. the apartments. They were also really well done. And oh, the, totally. the exterior of these places and um, um, the train yard out in the countryside, every, you look at every single set. Even the train itself was really interesting, the train that features so prominently in the first season, at least. Really, really fascinating, beautiful, and specific. And for me, it's less the sort of in-jokes, the the kind of politicals. It's, it's more the, the storytelling and the specificity of production design that always gets me when you see it all works together, but it's not, it's, it's, you're noticing it, but it's not taking
1: over. Right. Well, as we discussed before, with respect uh, to the Queen's Gambit, Berlin may not seem to some people as an obvious choice to tell the story of a Kentucky chess prodigy, but Berlin architecture, both East and West, offered, as you discussed the last time we talked, it offered a lot of possibilities for recreating the world of uh, America in the 1960s, as well as sites for international uh, chess tournaments. Can you tell me more about what you learned about contemporary Berlin as a site for location shooting? Um, well, I have to go back
0: to, to when I first brought Uli Hanush on to the show. I mean, the only way to answer that is to answer this. Uli was um, the production designer on Babylon Berlin, and I, I went after him. And my assumption had always been that the show would be based in New York. I would, because the show takes place in New York, uh, Kentucky, Paris, Moscow, uh, Mexico City, Las Vegas, um, and I'm probably leaving something out, Ohio. (laughs) <laughs> um all these different places that that where the, where she travels and and where the story happens so i thought we'd be based somewhere and maybe send some units out for some footage here or there but but um but but do it that way uli was the one who said do it all in berlin said come to berlin i will show you an example of every bit of architecture that will work for what you want to do and so we all trekked to Berlin and i soon learned that Lee, um, Lee uh, has a way of making it The the world revolve around him. (laughs) We're all just extras in his movie of life. I say that in a very loving way because I so adore him. But we started later so that we could wait for him to have a vacation. We did everything for Uli because he's amazing. But he said come to Germany and he showed us a building that could be Las Vegas on the interior. And we shot there. He showed us something that could be Russia. He showed us something that could be Mexico City we went and drove into the countryside and saw uh, someplace where we could be part of Kentucky. So we ended up doing 90% there because we saw it there. I don't know that it was so much about their architecture beyond the fact that it is, it is post-war because the city was pretty much leveled during the war. It has a variety of things. They rebuilt a lot of structures to look like they did originally, but they also, um, they've also built other strange buildings in bizarre different kinds of architecture as a a result because Berlin is um, truly this place where where you know anybody creative in that part of the world especially from Germany because if you didn't want to be in the draft you went to Berlin that was the one city where you're allowed to go so that was all artists so all of that factors into it and by the time we spent a week with Uli we had seen sort of, I was really convinced we could do it all there if we were very careful about how we used um, digital effects.
1: In, in our discussion, I just wanna kind of circle back to something we you, you mentioned, but when we talked about the Queen's Gambit, um, I vividly recall you telling me that, about the central importance of casting, um, especially with the actors who carry the majority of the scene. Uh, scenes. As I said here, we have 157 characters in this this drama. What performances in in Babylon, Berlin did you find most compelling and why? I mean, you mentioned, you know, the the actress who plays Lottie. I remember you talking about um, the importance of Beth Harmon's uh, red hair that sets her apart, especially in these more very gray, dreary landscapes, and so she pops um, both as a, a site of attention, but also as being different than others around her. And I couldn't help me think of Lottie's, you know, uh, uh, green cloche hat, which separates her from other others on the streets. Or, you know, she puts that on, and all of a sudden, this in this drab world is this like pop of color. But anyways, I wanted to go back to characters and casting and what you thought there with Babylon.
0: I loved her. I thought Lisa, whose name, her last name, I can't remember. I thought, yeah, the bad guy, the big guy. Um, again, Bruno. I can't, Bruno, I'm not going to remember their names, so I'll just tell you the characters, the actors. But he was tremendous. Um, I thought the kid with the deaf parents was tremendous. Oh, I mean, there's really, I don't know if I could pick anybody. I thought the casting pretty much soup to nuts was, was pretty good. Nobody, nobody bad. The, 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 the woman, the Russian woman who performs in the club, the Uh singer. Yeah. She's amazing. Um, I I mean, all the way through it, the Armenian gangster who owns the club is tremendous. And um, uh, you know, I almost cast him as Vasily Borgov in, um, in the show, you know,
1: I could see that
0: but he was tremendous. They were all great. I thought, I I mean, I don't know that I can pick one. I think, I think the character of Lottie was my favorite character, but I think the performances were across the board, really terrific. His, um, my God, uh, uh, what's his name? The captain, the the police detective, his wife was amazing. And um, the landlady, oh my God, where he's staying in that boarding house. Who's in love with him. I mean, we could go on forever. And if, you haven't seen the show, it's, this is going to get boring, so I'll, I'll yeah. stop. <laughs> well,
1: it's also interesting that it, mostly all the characters are pretty complex. So someone like Bruno, in this massive wall of a man, and he's, at, you know, at he, he's lethal, he's brutal, he's A killer. He's a liar. He's a manipulator, but he's warm. He loves his wife. He helps Lottie when she can't have, doesn't have the money to bury her mother. So he's, you know, but so that you can't. The characters, you know, it's not like the one bad guy. I mean, you get even with when in in the club where all these worlds collide. Of you know conservative nationalists and, and gangsters and people off the street. And, but that, they're very complicated stories. Even Stefan, the, the deaf assistant, um, who is really kind of an informant for the counselor Benda. Um, you know. But of course it works narratively because he is, his parents are deaf so he can read lips. But as an undercover assistant to the cop, he can read what, the people's lips and see them through his binoculars as they're plotting these nefarious activities. Anyways, they're they're really complex characters as well. Um, It it was interesting to me that the series only, uh, uh, and I'd love to hear you talk about this too. I don't remember this at all in in Queen's Gambit, but um, here the the series offers a recap beginning only with episode seven in season one. or the first of the first season with so many characters and so many complications so much history and unfinished plot lines, I mean that's the other thing we don't nev, not at all every plot line is resolved there's it, it doesn't work like that is this a series designed to be binge watched. Um, and what is lost and what's gained in that mode of viewing do you think.
0: I don't know if it was, I don't know how it was released initially in Germany. And Netflix, with their own productions, doesn't do recaps. They don't do recaps. So if there's a recap on their show, it's usually because the show was made somewhere else. And so they've acquired the show. So Babylon Berlin was a show they acquired. And then later, I think for the third season and fourth season, helped finance it. Why
1: don't they do recaps?
0: Um, it's just, they just have certain rules. They just don't, they, they, they don't do it. Um, um, and they feel like it smooths out the binge watching, um, of it all. And because the people who watch Netflix tend to go from episode to episode more often than not, depending on the kind of series it is, um, a recap is just annoying um so they all that's why they also let you skip the the title wow. sequence if you want to because it just depends if it's a really good title sequence you'll want to watch it sometimes but um so uh I don't know I don't know what the deal was with um with Babylon Berlin but that was that's probably why they they had that I think binge watching I don't know if it was designed that way again but I I think that There's merits to both, you know, there I I don't I don't see one as better than the other watching or waiting a week for a show. There are people who argue that when you release shows all at once, you remove the water cooler element. But Squid Game, I think, blows up that and other shows blow that up. Um, I think things become a phenomenon no matter what form they take and how you can watch it. And I think that we're at this place in the world where I'm agnostic to form and format and everything. I mean, you know, people watch on their laptop, people watch on their phone. And I remember when I was shooting Godless, I was saying, oh, my God, people are going to watch this Western that I shot in widescreen on their, you know, Samsung Galaxy. And but now if they watch it is really all I care about. And people, some people like to binge watch. Some people don't. I don't know. I don't think that there's any indicator one way or the other. And um, I think that no matter what you're designing a show so that people want to keep watching no matter what, whether it's a week apart or, or, or they're all released at the same time, that's really, you're telling a good story hopefully.
1: Right. It's just interesting. Like when I first saw this, of course, like I told you, I, I've written lots of, things about weimar and its films and its popular culture over the years but when i would tell friends of mine or family more like family members oh you've got to watch this and they just kind of gave up because they it's it it, if you don't even have an inkling of the history you don't have to know all the history but and there's so many characters that it become it's hard to follow at first i mean you know and after 28 episodes you kind of you 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 do get in the groove but especially in that first season, it's, it's, there's so many different things happening. I mean, you've got, you know, the Trotsky, the Trotsky faction trying to get the train to Trotsky in, in, in uh, Turkey, you've got, um, the, you know, conservatives trying to bring back the Kaiser, you have the gangsters and you're not even sure there's rival gangster. I mean, it's just hard to follow who's not Lottie and, and, uh, uh, Roth. I mean, you know, they, they become your anchor to this world, but they're passing through so many worlds. And that's why I first binge watched it myself with my daughter, we, uh, who also studied a lot of German history. And we binge watched it. And it also has a lot of, you know, where you jump out of your skin at the end of, a, of, a, of an episode. But I mean, it was, a, you know, it took a few days. <laughs> you no, know,
0: it's really, really confusing. And so, but it's one of those where you're pleasantly confused and you just go with it. You know, I remember watching The Wire and then telling everyone, just watch four episodes. By the end of four episodes, you'll be you'll be fine. Just go with it. And it's never boring. And that's what this was. I was really confused by I felt like I needed to know more history than I knew. I felt But ultimately you catch up to it in a way. And the drama is really apparent. You understand like this, his brother, the hypnotist, the doctor, I don't still, (laughs) I have no idea what that's all about to this day. You know, I, I, you can explain it to me some other time, but I'm, I'm like, I don't get that. Or why his brother is working for the gangster, blah, blah, blah. Get none of that. So, uh, but I think that it's one of those shows where somehow, because these characters are so interesting you really enjoy following these characters and watching these people and you trust because there's such a sure hand, you know, behind it all behind the camera that, that, you know, you're going to get answers and you do. And and by and large, you really do. And in fact, my biggest problem with the third season is that it wasn't as complex and that it was a little more straightforward i didn't enjoy it as much as the first two because it was a,
1: hold that cuz i'm going to ask you later about that about which ones you liked and why um but i i guess i just to finish up with this question i hear you about scale and like you said you know you're shooting in widescreen someone's going to watch it on their phone and there's part of you that dies a little bit um on the other hand on the other hand you know you want people to watch but i mean i would I didn't. I would love to see episodes of Babylon Berlin and Queens Gambit, by the way, in the theater here on campus because they're so lush and they're so. You it, it scale matters. It it changes your perception and, and immersion into the world. So, um, but you know, I watched both on my television. So there you go.
0: And you enjoyed it. You loved yeah, it. You we're very happy. You weren't sitting there watching, going damn it, I wish I could see this on the big screen. You're going, man, I bet this would be great on the big screen. There's a difference.
1: <laughs> right. But as you said, too, when we talked before, you said it's, you know, all you have are images and sound. And I think with Queen's Gambit, the soundtrack was really amazing, as it is here. I think, um, uh, anyways, we can hold. Let's move on to, um, we were talking about like character development and is character development is always a matter of plot development and vice versa. Um, From the start, from what I've read, the creators knew they didn't want to make a typical story about the years before 1933 when Hitler took power. They also didn't want to tell a conventional crime story, and I know you're very interested in crime stories, but instead wanted to rethink long arc storytelling, um, making it more immersive, more novel-like. This is just things I've read from interviews um and they they said they had to leave the old ways behind they weren't going to tell there's so many crime dramas out there they wanted to kind of break the at least challenge the conventions of the crime drama what do you think is most innovative about the story's approach to storytelling and crime storytelling and how did that strike you as someone who's very interested and thinks about this a lot
0: It's funny i didn't I appreciated a lot about it. I wasn't sure it was innovative so much as it was just very good. And, um, you know, it was original in that it just had its own look and its own feel. And it was partly original for me because it was German and it felt very German. It didn't feel American. So I, um, I don't know, I don't know how innovative it was, but I do know that the person, again, going back to Tom Tickfer and Johnny, um, Clink, the, the composer, you know, he's an electronic music person. You know, that's where he came from, with those clubs. He was a famous guy working in those clubs in East Berlin. So all of the people working on this had this background of sort of very singular, specific kind of, of um, art. And so I think it just you feel that more than anything. It's just really like I said, and it's a word I'm just going to use over and over. It's just very, very specific. And that's pleasing. Because it doesn't feel like everything else, and I don't know that that's innovative so much as it is really well done. All those characters you talk about—they're, of course, they're really complex because that's just what you're supposed to do, <laughs> you know. And people, especially in film, they'll say it's more novel-like just if you have somebody who's, beyond, you know, got more of a character trait than the actor playing them. You know, that's where we've we've gotten. But you see, with with series and limited series how you can just really kind of um, create these amazing characters that that throw off story um, in a way. And that is what I think. And that's why I think Babylon Berlin becomes so complicated, but in a fun way. Part of the the structure of it is a character very much as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And but but what struck me is that and kind of in a tradition of Weimar filmmaking, there's a things are not all explained. Everything isn't tied up. You don't storylines aren't put to rest. I mean, there's, like you said, with dr. Schmidt, the you know, who is thought to be a quack doctor a hypnotist, but he's you know, trying to create forge a new man for the twentieth century. and um you know, he, at the end, we're supposed to think at one point that perhaps this is. Our lead character's long-lost brother, who he abandoned on the battlefields of World War One, um, but it's unclear that that's true. I mean, he may think that, but that might be transference in the in the course of analysis. And it's never you don't know. You just never know. He 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 appears in and out of these storylines, and. You know, by the end, you think I at least I thought this isn't his brother. This is this is no filial. I, that was
0: the only one where I wanted to know more. I like you got to <laughs> help me here. You got to help me here. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I want to return to the mocha FD and the final sequence in the in the show's um, second episode where Svetlana performs a, a Marlena Dietrich kind of inspired gender bending routine. It's su style to ashes to dust. Planked by semi-nude dancers in banana skirts, made famous by Josephine Baker, who took her career from the U.S. to Paris and then to Berlin in the 20s. Um, can you tell um, more about how Uli, uh Hayesh created this and other worlds in the series, including your own, um, for which he also won an Emmy for his work? Like just the, what is the strategy of creating, you know, this kind of, creating a world, this, you know, you said there's these locations, He, when you were doing uh, Queen's Gambit, he was saying, well, here, this could work for this, or that could work for this, but how exactly does he work and build that kind of, because it's so such an elaborate set, as you said, that, that club with all of its hidden recesses, the, the cold fish locker where our heroine is left uh, to suffer, um, you know, things like that. How does he work? I mean, how does this come to be?
0: um well i think what he does like all good production designers is he designs um from the story and the aesthetic and the palette and all of those visual things that are obviously part of any discussion when you're making a film or a series are there but it all grows out of the story so when he's designing a club or designing something it's he's thinking about Um, what the needs are for the, for the story, not just the physical needs, not just the size of it and how they're going to shoot it, but just what is, how does it work within as a character within every, everything else? What does it say about the people in it? What does it say about the time um, that we're in the period? What does it say about um, just the kind of social mores of that time? All of that. You're just kind of, he's thinking about that. He has an amazing team,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: He has an art director, Kai. She's wonderful, and they work very closely together. Sabina, his his um, um, set designer, is also amazing. They all work very carefully because they work. They also do a ton of research. Mm-hmm. They do a ton of. There's a ton of images on on with me. I gave them one image which I thought represented the palette for Queen's Gambit. You know this photograph, and then they began to create all. It, the...
1: What was the photograph?
0: it was a, it wasn't a famous photograph. It was one we took by accident on set one day on a, on a location that we were scouting and the cinematographer, we we always bring a, a red camera with us and we'll take still photos as well as other using the actual lenses. And we were shooting in a hotel lobby and there was an image we caught. It's, you know but but it w- it had everything i wanted it w- i looked at it and i went oh my god this is our show yeah. and um and then uli began to extrapolate from that and his team and they create other images that feel like that image and then he works very closely with the costume designer because it has to work well with them as well and the costume designer if i'm going to have i know that she's going to be in a room for a scene And the room might have wallpaper or patterns or a certain color. I want to make sure that the wardrobe goes with it, not in a way that feels, again, like self-conscious, but that feels feels right and interesting and, you know, pleasing. You just that's what you're always looking for. What is the most pleasing angle that also tells the story? At least I am. And so we that's how he works, constantly back and forth, trying to find the right place. Then you have to go to a very utilitarian mindset. Can, how can we shoot here? Can we shoot here? What can we do here? This may only fit half the bill. Inside is great. Outside isn't. How do we do? What is the formula for shooting inside but not outside? All these things are factored in and at the same time, sourced back to the story and sourced back to these aesthetic ideas that you're slowly coming to as you develop, as you look at things. And he may design something that kind of is emblematic for him for the whole show. You, you never, you never know. Um, But he, he works very closely from both a story place and a research place. And he has a very specific visual sense as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Clear. So uh, as we, Coming to uh, the question that I, I held back, but so there are three seasons. Um, the first two focus on crime, international espionage, prostitution, cabaret. You know, at, at stake is a is a still image taken from an illicit a porn film that's going to be used to black, blackmail a political figure, and so on. Um, the third season um, focuses on the emergence of sound cinema, surrealism, hypnotism, the occult. Um, ending with the stock market crash. So you said you found the third season to be it wasn't as complicated for you. Um, that you found maybe you could say a little bit more. I mean, about how how that struck you.
0: I actually felt that it was it was better made than written. I felt that it was really well made, but the story I wasn't quite as. As lost in it. Now it could be because I was more familiar now with what was going on, and so the bar was set. But it didn't feel um, as as just uh, woven as well woven as and 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 complex as the first two seasons did. It was still massively entertaining and still
1: yeah, totally. But I headed above
0: the rest. It just didn't at the end of it. I didn't feel gobsmacked the way I did at the end of the first two seasons.
1: Right, right. I mean, it seems to me the first two seasons were really focused on kind of Berlin as the epicenter for all these international currents. I mean, okay, we've got our two leads, you know, the man from Cologne. So he's a provincial guy who doesn't really know Berlin. You know, he's a Catholic coming to this big city for the first time, um, where Lottie, of course, is a local and she knows all the places to go and becomes his guide he's you know um but because there's all these complicated stories about the really the emergence of the you know the well not even the emergence the ongoing efforts of the of the conservative right to both use the emergent Nazi movement to their own ends thinking they can control it, you know kids and young adult males to participate in these paramilitary activities and and then you've got the whole question of you know Soviet Union and its relationship to Germany at this time, and and then Soviet politics. It's I mean, I'm just saying it's it's an international kind of caper, um, and set in Berlin with a very Berlin focus, but all these people moving through it, um, so that even I think it's in season two when Svetlana and Kardakov of all people is alive and they're in Paris where she's kind of upped her act to a, another way, whereas. The third season to me just struck me it's focused on on the film industry and the making of this this film the demon film and murders on the set and everything and what took me back was the way that even the the film itself that they're shooting looks like a film from you know 1920 it looks like caligari it doesn't look like anything like the late 20s where you'd get more of a documentary feel like it seemed by moving it away from this international story to this very focused gangland Berlin story, it, it you know, and of course we know the stock market crash is coming. Um, and from what I understand, the next season four, which should it will be in 1930 and 31. So, yeah, I just I thought the first one it left me, I just like who are these people, and then seeing them return, a lot of things were answered in three in a way like I did not want it to be answered. You know i didn't want the industrialist to be you know revealed as just a poor boy whose mother bullied him you know uh stuff like that
0: right right
1: um so i know tell us about your upcoming projects i'm interested in especially for our series um to tell us what you're working on next i've read some things but you can tell us and then i'm hoping you could just give us some of your reflections on how television and storytelling and filmmaking is changing. What is global TV? I mean, how does that function? What do you see happening that you could share with us? Um,
0: Right now I'm writing, but not directing an adaptation of the Mary Doya Russell novel, The Sparrow, which was written in the nineties. It's a a science fiction piece about Jesuits who go off into space (laughs) to prove the existence of God. And of course, what could go wrong? um Johan Rank will direct that. He directed Chernobyl, among other things, wow. as, and I'm doing that for um FX slash Hulu. Um, so I'm in the middle of writing that. I'm um, then I'm also doing um Tom Fontana and I have written a series or in the middle of writing a series called Monsieur Spade, um, which takes place in France in 1962, just as the Algerian war is ending. Um, Sam Spade, yes, that Sam Spade, the Dashiell Hammett character, has been living there for, you know, 10, 15 years, quietly, um, sort of not, you know, doing what he used to do. He's living out his kind of middle age golden years, very happy, and with the ending of the war in Algeria, which brought a lot of darkness back to France, his own tranquility in this small town um, in, in the French countryside is about to end. And Clive Owen will play Sam Spade. And um, I am going to direct those and we'll we'll go. I think we'll start prepping next May, say. Um, I am also doing a series that I'm not writing, but will direct based on a series of um, Danish novels called Department Q that takes place in Edinburgh in Scotland. And it is my my guilty pleasure, our British procedurals. And I've learned to do my version of that. And so um, I'm going to be doing that. Um, I'm not sure when, probably right after uh, Monsieur Spade, I'm guessing, will do it. Um, they're great books, and he's, it's, the characters in it are tremendous and wonderful, and I really want to do that. And then I'm adapting with Megan Abbott, the novelist. She and I are adapting Laughter in the Dark, the Nabokov novel, which takes me back to Berlin and Weimar days. And I'm doing it as a real, as a film, not a series like the others. It'll be a real old school film noir um, type story. We're actually, it's also going to involve movie making in Germany at that time, and we're going to have a film within a film. And I'm kind of using the book as sort of a sandbox to 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 play in.
1: Oh, nice. So tell us, so what could you tell us about how even your own work has changed, you know, and and where you work and how you work, who you work with, and how your work is circulated?
0: Well, I mean, I think everybody's work has changed in the last year or two, just as we're all, we're all isolating ourselves and working remotely. And, and, um, and some of that is for the better for me, because I like to be alone and isolated. <laughs> anyway, um, but I think that, you know, the business is becoming very global. The tele, you know, storytelling, you know, once upon a time it was unheard of that anyone would read subtitles. So things were getting dubbed all the time and there are still those countries that, you know, will their their citizens will only watch dubbed material but as you know, the the for us in the United States, you see over and over again Babylon Berlin, Lupin, Squid Game, all these shows um, that are uh, money heists, that are giant hits, worldwide hits. And everybody now, you see every company, Disney has Star. AMC just started AMC Plus, which is where I think we'll do Monsieur Spade. Um, so they're all want did, did this to compete globally, to have global shows just so that they can be everywhere. Um, uh, Department Q, I'm doing with Netflix in Britain. So you see everybody and everybody's kind of doing that because storytelling is a kind of universal language. And it's nice to see those walls broken down. It's also nice to see documentaries in the last 10, 12 years become huge in a way, nobody would watch a documentary the same way they wouldn't read subtitles. It was it was a shame. And now people are binge watching documentaries all the time and you see the rise of podcasts, which are like documentaries. All of this to me reflects just a, a general level of hunger for good stories.
1: Yeah, it's interesting the subtitle question because I think it took me a little too long when I first started watching Babylon Berlin to know I could get rid of the dubbed version. Uh, but I remember when I was living and studying in Berlin many years ago, having arguments, especially with my German friends, because it was always said that, like, well, in France, there's no subtitles. We we watch our movies. We in the, the language, the texture of the language, this is all part of the thing. And then my German friends would say, we've got a really old population, and they're watching these things on TV, and they can't read. They can't read the t- the subtitles. They have to be dubbed if they're going to be able to watch it. So, again, when you talk about, because even Babylon Berlin, it's dubbed in many different languages. Um, Yeah. So that, and I think, so that...
0: Most shows are still dubbed, you know? I mean, Queen's Gambit was dubbed, you know? Um, So many are are still dubbed.
1: Yeah, with lots of different choices. But I think, again, this is reaching different kinds of audiences. Um, Well, we're almost at the 10-minute mark, but i and I see that we've got questions in the Q&A. Um, I'd like to invite Emily Zinn back to the screen because she's been following questions and uh, remarks in the chat, which I have not been doing because I've been talking to you.
0: Good so- questions, I see here.
1: Mm.
2: Yes, there are some good ones here. Thank you so much for taking these, Scott. Yeah. So the first one we were hoping you could talk a little more about is the use of music in um in Babylon Berlin, and um, what what makes the use of music so striking in it? And then, how do you think about the use of music in your own work, in Queen's Gambit or in other projects?
0: Um, I think the music. The, what's so striking about the music in in Babylon Berlin is that it's just so good. <laughs> good and I think that you know again like I always say you only get two senses sight and sound when you make a show or a movie and sound is just as important and I think that for me music is a huge part of it because you use it either for uh you know to kind of um augment or enhance what's happening and and make you feel it a little more or you use it to kind of give a vibe or a flavor you know um it just depends to 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 Uh, You use it for humor. You use it for all. I mean, there's, there's a million reasons why music is another tool in your, in your sound arsenal. And the, again, Tom and, and Johnny, the guys who did the music for Babylon Berlin, they're, they're both old time music people. And Johnny is an electronic, you know, kind of comes from that whole electronic music scene and to, to apply that sensibility. And yet it still feels period, is really interesting to me and I think they pulled that off I, I I think the music is extraordinary and that title sequence is so good that I hired Saskia to do yeah. my, my title sequence
1: <laughs> now, as soon as I saw that title sequence I got sold. I mean that is so amazing yeah
2: good yeah you don't want to skip that title sequence um so on a, in a similar vein um we've got a question from Blaine about Um, What's the most important element in recreating a historical period in a way that really immerses the audience, do you think? And I'm also wondering if you can talk a little bit about pitfalls in making a period piece since you've since you've worked in so many different periods.
0: You can have a visual cliche so easily, depending on the period, especially the more familiar periods. You know, you can really overdo it. And the trick is to at once make it real and believable so that it doesn't feel like people are dressing playing dress up. You see that a lot of times in shows, everybody's clothes are perfectly pressed and, you know, you see a Western and no one's got any dirt on them and they are all wearing fancy hats and they all look and it doesn't look real. And even if you're doing something more urban or, you know, you, everybody, there's a, there's a feeling of, it just, it just feels fake. It just feels like you're ticking off all the visual boxes. So the challenge is what's the least amount of telling detail you can use and the most amount of original detail you can use to convey the the period. And and, um, it's a gut thing, I guess, you know? I guess it's looking at something and knowing that that just feels fake to me. And sometimes with background too, you see people walking around and nobody looks real. It doesn't look like anything, you know? But in Babylon, Berlin, those city streets and the chaos and the streetcars and everything feels like it's it's real. It has a kind of grimy, gritty, lived-in, you know, um, instead of presented feel to it.
2: Excellent. And on a on a similar note, the, the answer there may also be the gut feeling answer. But um, what what appeals to you about the way Babylon Berlin uses noir conventions? And in general, why are you interested in noir?
0: Well, I like the way it's just the noir conventions are in a different place than I'm used to. You know, it just, it's just, there's, they're using them politically, which I thought was interesting to tell a political story um, instead of a who murdered, you know, so and so story. It's, it's very interesting that it's also, um, they are, Uh, It's very emotional. It's not it's not an exercise in style. You know, there's these are real people you you care about. And um, I think noir can be really overdone and and can be kind of you can embrace it, the conventions of it too much. But I think that it's it's a feeling again more than anything. I think it just what feels like a kind of moire story, and um, it's both the visuals and the sort of psychological aspects of it, and and they balance that really really well. I think. I mean, it's it's tremendously made stuff.
2: I have a question from Lucas Cunningham, who wonders um, about whether Babylon Berlin influenced how you structured the Queen's Gambit, and if you can talk in general about how you approach story structure.
0: Um, no, I've been using wonky structure going back to Dead Again, you know, a um, hundred years ago. So I, I like strange structures. Um, also some of that is by necessity. You know, I remember in various things I've done over the years, um, um, queen, you know, out of sight was a structured kind of strange because I needed to do certain things to tell the story. Queen's Gambit. I structured it that way because the whole opening chapter was about a little girl. And I didn't want you to come start watching the show and think, Oh, this whole show is going to be about a little girl. I wanted to show you immediately that it's not your dad's chess show. So um, that was sort of the, the, the point for that. So structure for me is very important. It is, as I was saying, a character. But it also, it's not a gimmick. It sort of grows out of how 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 I need to tell the story. It's like what works for the, it's like anything else, like production design or anything else I'm thinking about. I'm not gonna go, I don't start something by deciding on a structure. I start something by deciding on a story and see how the structure can help me tell the story.
2: So I have a question from Arseny who wonders, um, when working with historical facts, do you refer to historians or do you do some separate research? Um, do you have consultants who are helping keep track of the facts and the timeline in general? Um, in general, how, how you work with historical material?
0: Um, I haven't really done anything historical. I've done things that take place in a historical time. And right. sometimes there are real people mentioned. For me, it's fiction. And so I do have a researcher who who will I work very closely with over the years. Who kind of what, what, what I'm on the make for is more story details stuff, not not the kind of book reporty kind of stuff about a period, but more stuff that might throw off story for me. I had experts in chess for this. I had Gary Kasparov was my sort of world chess expert about Russian chess and the Russian chess scene and Russian chess players and their mindset. And he went through the script with me and offered amazing amounts of ideas in terms of how people are thinking and what they might say. I had Bruce Pandolfini, one of the great chess teachers in the in the world, also advising me as well as the actors and teaching them how to play chess. And they went over the games so I will have technical people sometimes, you know, depending on what's happening. If I'm the Western, I had all sorts of horse folks involved, so it just, it depends, but historically it's a work of fiction, and so I will bend certain things, you know, as long as the spirit of it is right, and I've I've ruffled feathers, I know, um, here and there, but I feel like I'm, I'm just trying to tell a story and Queen's Gambit. That's why most of the characters in it that are in it are fit are fake. You notice there is no Bobby Fisher who, you know, who, who was a huge part of this, no Boris Spassky. They were the major chess people, but they're never mentioned. No one ever talks about them or any of that here. So I have made up people, but the people in the past are referenced, um, um you know, uh, in books that she's reading and she's reading real books, real chess books. And then when they talk about legendary chess players, that's all absolutely, absolutely
1: true. But I would just want to add to, it's the weird thing with Babylon Berlin, I kept thinking these first three seasons are all set in 1929 till October, you know, till the crash and a lot goes on. I mean, even the fact that the two main protagonists can withstand all of the beating and physical challenges and in one you know and and it's funny because a couple of the children characters who start out as children you know they may they were doing season two season three several years later and they're grown up but you still you don't care because the story holds as an arc of before the the, the crash even though it's all in 1929
0: and breaking bad is the same way that's supposed to be a year or something
1: mm-hmm. you know what a year <laughs>
2: So, I have a question um, turning specifically toward The Sparrow. Um, Rowan Oliphant wants to know um, about what aspects of that book made you want to bring it to the screen. Um, And a related question what's the greatest challenge in adapting a book to a script?
0: Um, The Sparrow, I am not a religious person, (coughs) and I love how. I love, how, I read the book in the 90s and I wanted to, to adapt it back then. It's another one I've been chasing for forever. I love how it talks about religion in both a very generous way and a very realistic way, and it does it through genre, science fiction. And it does it, it also is about the arrogance of, of mankind in general, But religion in particular, in this case, but it is really fascinating that these people go out to that we've made first contact, and they want to get there first And the Vatican, you know, ironically, is the only one who can afford to put it together by selling a few paintings. Um, So they go and they, you know, ostensibly to prove the existence that these are God's creatures. And they're just sort of duped by their own faith in a way that that isn't cruel, but is interesting. And that's what I loved about it. It walks this line and it was characters I'd never seen before. It was a way into a story I'd never I'd never seen before. And the book is 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 certainly imperfect, but it's full of so many great ideas. You know, some of the characters in it were kind of maddening to me. But the idea of the characters I thought was, were were terrific. and. Um, I'm just I'm having a ball with it. Um, what was the the other question? Was that the out?
2: broader question? Was what's the biggest challenge when adapting a script from a book?
0: Well, if you love the book, it's very hard to decide what to get rid of, and you yeah. just have to make it your own. You have to figure out what is this about for you. You know, you're know, you not trying to directly translate the book and the book is going to disappoint everybody as a movie, no matter what you do. So you want to make it work as a movie more than anything. And therefore, even if it's different here and there, if it really works, there's nothing worse than it not working. And it's so different from the book. So the trickiest thing is figuring out, you know, you really have to ask yourself why you're adapting something and how do you make it your story so it becomes more like a rewrite of a, of something that's already written that you wrote you'd look at it that way you look at these are all my words now, and I'm going to rewrite it into a, a, a more uh, uh, efficient kind of story or I'm going to expand it or I'm going to do what depending on the job, but that's it you have to, you have to make it yours.
2: Excellent. Um, okay, A last question from my end. Um, which is, since this is part of a global TV series, I wonder if there's something you want to recommend to our audience as their next, um, next series to binge watch.
0: Um, the French show, The Bureau, is a masterpiece. If I don't, even if you don't like espionage shows, it's terrific. It's really very good. There are, I think, six, five, or six seasons of it. I'm not sure, but it is really, really good. Also, if you love soap operas, I'd watch The Restaurant, which is um a Swedish show that's terrific. Also, there are four seasons of that. Um, the bureau is on Amazon and I think the restaurant is on Sundance, but they're both terrific. The, the the bureau is is like a perfect show, though. It is high level quality, really well done. The restaurant, which is also really well done, but it is more of it's downtown abbey in a restaurant over 40 years. <laughs> and, but very good, very, very good. And well good to me. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for taking welcome. the time out to talk to us and be part of our series. And, My uh, pleasure. Yeah, really appreciate it. We'd love to have you back when, uh, when your next projects uh, and, and hopefully welcome you back to campus sometime. Someday. <laughs> Someday, it'll happen. Anyways, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, everybody. everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.